Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Welcome to the New Books Network. The term mental illness can itself be anxiety-inducing and depressing. There are words, though, that can counter the fears and stresses that mind-related conditions induce in most of us at some point in our lives. One of those bracing, comforting words is flourishing. That welcome word abounds in the 2021 book, From Survive to Thrive, Living Your Best Life with Mental Illness by Dr. Margaret S. Chisholm, a psychiatrist at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. This is the ideal book if you have been struggling from everything from a bout of depression to schizophrenia or love someone who is. This short book is just the tonic for those experiencing a range of conditions, including substance abuse or even dissatisfaction with the way their lives are going, but who are uncertain what changes to make, if any. There's also some frank discussion of suicide, either of a loved one or the thoughts of ending one's life that afflict many people at times. Dr. Chisholm uses her own experience with postpartum depression when she was a busy young physician in a fellowship training program to illustrate how those in the throes of a mental health crisis often need to be nudged by a spouse or other family member to seek professional help. The book delineates what that help should look like. We are introduced to the four perspectives through which all mental health concerns should be addressed, according to Dr. Chisholm. These are disease, dimensional, behavior, and life story. She advocates for a thoroughgoing mental status exam, MSE, and encourages the involvement of family members in the process, given that the person in mental health, mental health distress may not be equipped just then to provide crucial background and may lack awareness of worrying changes in his or her behavior. Chisholm does not sugarcoat the grim realities of serious mental conditions, but the book is upbeat. Its tone is good-humored common sense, and the message is hopeful. We are given practical advice on how to make incremental changes, such as long walks and jobs, whether for pay or volunteer, that will enhance our mental and physical health. Along these lines, the doctor describes the four pathways associated with well-being, family, work, education, and community. Let's hear from Margaret Chisholm herself about the book. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Hello. My name, I just gonna, I was just going to say before we get, you're so friendly, and that's the tone of the book, because it's very, it's a very happy book, you're just right in there. So I just want to say that my name is Hope G. Lim, and I'm one of the hosts of the New Books Network. And I'm talking today, as you heard, with Margaret Chisholm, Dr. Margaret Chisholm, the author of the 2021 book From Survive to Thrive, Living Your Best Life with Mental Illness. Thank you for joining us today, Meg. 
Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here and having a conversation with you this morning. Well, good. Thank you very much. I'd like to start with the title of your book and with the scary words for many of us, mental illness. Even though we live in an age when celebrities and athletes and even candidates for high office discuss quite candidly their mental health struggles, there's a good deal of stigma surrounding it. And in your book, you discuss a broad range of mental health conditions from the milder forms of depression to the quite serious instances of conditions such as obsessive compulsive disorder. Could you discuss what you'd want to do, why, what, what categories of mental illness you included and who is your intended audience for the book? Yeah, so I wrote the book primarily for patients and their family members. Um, and I, my goal, overarching goal, was to inspire hope. I also wanted to demystify psychiatry and destigmatize uh, psychiatric conditions. Now, the word mental illness <clears throat> carries a lot of weight. I really view uh, mental illness as any time when our mental life goes awry, when things aren't, our life isn't where we want it to be, things aren't going the way we expected. And um, these can be because of changes in our thoughts or our feelings or our actions. So it's mental illness is really a large umbrella. It's not meant to mean just uh, diseases of the brain or broken parts in the brain or the body, but it's really, um, it's an overarching term that describes any time when our mental life has gone awry. Hmm. Yeah, you. I'd like to quote from the book on that, on the terms of audience. You say, this book is for a person struggling with mental illness or despair, but you may be reading this on behalf of a loved one rather than for yourself. If that is the case, rest assured that you will find support and guidance here. But this book is also directed to anyone who wants to lead a better life. And that's true. Some of the people are just a little bit lost. They're not so much mentally ill, but they're just at a crossroads, as you say. Um, right. I mean, our, 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 we have long lives, we're complex human beings, and things don't always go the way we expect them to. And trying to understand, especially if there's patterns in the ways that our lives are going, um, a way of understanding what the explanations for, the, for these difficulties might be. I've noticed that your book is very upbeat and and friendly, and I, I I was very touched by your relationship with many of the of the of your patients. I I, I really got to like them quite a bit. They all seem like very interesting people. Is that upbeat attitude common amongst your fellow psychiatrists? And have what has been some of the reaction to your book from from the, your professional uh, coworkers? Um. Well, you know, the thing is we so often psychiatrists are working in isolation, so we really don't know what other psychiatrists are, <laughs> are doing. Um, I, I haven't had any negative feedback in terms of the tone of the book or, or the way that, you know, I describe interactions with patients. I am glad that you noted that it has a conversational tone. I think that's one of the things that's um, one of the, the misconceptions I think that people have about psychiatry, and it's probably the psychiatrists in the field's own fault, but there is this image that psychiatrists are often distant or cold or um, or, or not kind of natural in their interactions with patients. And I very much believe that psychiatry, like other fields of, of medicine, really needs to recognize each person as, um, as a human being and to, um, and to not uh, shroud that interaction in any way in mystery. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's not as mysterious <laughs> as uh, I think the normal uh, kind of uh, uh, everyday perception of psychiatry is that, you know, there's some, you know, magic that psychiatrists have and we're unpeeling layers of an onion. Um, I was taught that, you know, there really are no 
secrets. There's no like, you, you know, there's no ultimate truth that we're trying to get at and discover that it's really just a, about understanding people as people and understanding their motivations and their personalities and their life experiences. So um, again, that's one of my big goals is demystifying psychiatry. And in order to do that, I think it's important to have sort of these just real uh, common sense kinds of conversations with uh, with patients and with their loved ones about mental life. Um, and again, hope is another uh, important aspect of healing. And so being uh, upbeat is really, I think, important. Even, you know, obviously there's, uh, you know, you don't want to be overly upbeat when somebody is uh, experiencing a lot of distress, but uh, upbeat enough to uh, help them uh, feel like there's some hope that uh, things are going to get better. Well, speaking of words like hope, in the in the title of your book, you use the word thrive and best life. And I wonder if you could talk in the book, you do talk about the difference between thriving and flourishing. And could you just could you help us work work through some of those books between I'm sorry, the differences between the words happiness versus flourishing is there a difference. And one thing I noticed is you don't use the word contentment, because I think that that seems to imply that everything's fine. And you make the point that you really have to strive and continue to work at it. Maybe contentment isn't quite quite the word. Is that is that my own yeah, reading? I mean, I think I'm glad you picked up on that. Yeah, contentment really seems like uh, a place of where you want to rest. Um, and I would say that we're always striving to be better, um, to be better people, to uh, lead more full lives. Um, I don't think flourishing is sort of a ultimate uh, arrivable destination. I think it's an aspiration. Um, and yeah, so the science around flourishing really has... Um, well, there's a science around understanding flourishing and thinking about what cultures around the world and uh, across various uh, philosophical or theological um, beliefs uh, can agree upon about those aspects of life that are desired uh, by all people and that are desired as ends in themselves, um, not... Um, as instruments to another end. And so happiness and life satisfaction is just one domain of flourishing. Um, you can imagine that happiness can be superficial, it can be short-lived, it can be based on ultimately unsatisfying uh, 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 experiences, um, uh, you know, just seeking pleasure for its own sake. Um, so happiness and life satisfaction is just one aspect of flourishing. The other aspects are meaning and purpose, uh, physical and mental health, uh, character and virtue, and close social relationships. So I think that most uh, people can agree that this is something that they want in their life. They want to be happy. They want to be satisfied in life. They want to have meaning and purpose. They want to have mental and physical health. They want to have character and virtue, and they want to have close social relationships. So flourishing is really the combination of all those domains. And you don't have to have, for instance, mental health to, um, to flourish, um, but these are all ultimately uh, what we're all striving for. Um, and um, you can you, you can actually even be unhappy. You can have depression and still 
be able to flourish. So thinking about flourishing as this construct with these various domains that are um, are ends in themselves, that they're desired for their own sake, and that they're desired by people all around the world, that's, uh, I think, important to expanding our idea of what a good life is beyond just having happiness and life satisfaction. Hmm. Have any of your patients read the book? And did they, did they rec- did they recognize themselves in it, or or did they did they say I'm 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 not as or did they have a reaction did they like it or, you know I haven't had a conversation with any of my patients about the book, um, even though that was really one of my um, the driving forces for writing the book was because I really wanted to have a a book that would help explain my approach to patients, but because I've Um, many of the patients I'm seeing now, I've been seeing for so many years, I think they know a lot of uh, what we've, (laughs) what we talked about in the book. Um, People have, obviously, my patients have noticed that it's been published, and uh, some may have read it, but they've, they've not discussed it directly. I try to keep the focus on them in in our sessions. So um, maybe that's why maybe they, they're uh, reticent to to discuss my own uh, kind of stories that I reveal in the book. Well, maybe they don't consider themselves mentally ill. Now they're, you've done such a marvelous job that they just think, oh, I'll just keep seeing Dr. Chisholm. <laughs> exactly. I think they're they're pretty much on autopilot now, but they keep That's coming good. back. That's good. How, I was wondering how old, how young is the youngest patient? How old is the oldest patient? Oh, that's a good question. So I definitely have patients in their 80s because um, some of them have been with me a long time. I have one patient that's been with me since she was uh, really just out of high school and is, uh, you know, now mother of, you know, almost grown children. So, um, so I don't know what my, who my youngest patient is. They're probably in their late twenties at this point. Hmm. Well, one aspect of the book, I think that's really helpful is that I was really touched by how many of the patients had partners that entered into their relationships after they were after their mental health crises and they, and they entered into it. I think the book is very useful to make it less scary for people not to give up on someone just because that person has had a mental crisis in the past that they can have good and warm, warm relationships. Oh yeah. It's very inspiring. Actually. I'm so inspired by some of my patients who really have just, They've just blossomed mm. as people, despite some very serious psychiatric illnesses. Um, it's it's amazing to to see how well um, and what full lives people can lead, uh, despite having an illness that knocks them off trajectory, either temporarily or, or permanently. Yeah, some of the some of the stories that you relate are very heartwarming in that fact that some of them do quote these as young men in particular, and all of a sudden they 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 come in, they say they mention idly, oh well, I'm seeing this girl, and you go, oh really? That's nice. <laughs> so that's very that's very sweet. Um, I wanted to say the foreword to your book is by the baseball great Cal Ripken, and his it's interesting he he's he captures I think the the tone of the book, which is ordinary life that he just talks about he doesn't really talk about mental illness and here he is this this enormous this enormously important athlete who had you know scary moments in front of thousands of people at a stressful stressful career and yet he just talks about the things that you discussed about community family perseverance how did you happen to i know that he's a supporter of your work how did he happen how did you happen to arrange i mean did he say i'll write it for you or 
Well, you know, so uh, I direct a program for human flourishing, and he's one of our advisors. And really, you know, he's a, I think, uh, an example of somebody who really was has been able to flourish in life. And so we, you know, we want to learn from him, you know, what are the secrets of flourishing? Mm -hmm. So you can learn from science, you know, there is evidence that suggests that there are these four pathways to flourishing. Um, But science is only one place where we can learn about flourishing, right? We can also learn about flourishing very from various traditions, we can learn about flourishing from uh, various experts on the topic, but we can also learn about flourishing from people who've experienced it themselves. So, um, so he was sort of a natural to ask, um, you know, what is his secret of flourishing? How, how does he think about flourishing? Um, and as you, you know, see it when when you read the foreword, he's not, um, you know, been you know, lived a totally charmed life. He's had many successes, but he's also, you know, experienced like everybody, um, some challenges in life. Well, I was going to say, uh, apropos of the book that you, you discuss after I read the four, then you, then you get into the meat of the book that you list four perspectives for which all mel- mental distress or mental conditions should be examined. And they are, as I said, in the intro, uh, disease, dimensional behavior, and life story. Could you Talk about disease. And I noticed I was kind of heartened because you say you made clear that some things are not disease. You said that grief is is not a disease and shouldn't be treated as such. I was I was glad to see that. Could you discuss the disease? And was there any pushback from any of the readership about that that a wide range? Of, I thought, well, depression to me isn't as serious a condition as, as schizophrenia, and yet you, you kind of equ- you don't equate them, but you make clear that that they shouldn't be necessarily segregated that, that those people are, are normal human beings who should, that with schizophrenia that, that could you discuss disease and, and what you, what, 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 what's encompassed under that rubric? Yeah. So, I mean, basically um, when somebody comes to, to see me and, or anybody that's trained in this way uh, in this idea of looking at patients from these four perspectives, we're really looking at their, the problems that they bring us and thinking about, well, what are, what's the origin of these problems? And they're not necessarily mutually exclusive origins, but, you know, some presentations, some problems that uh, patients bring really look, um, you know, a lot like other problems in medicine, uh, where it looks like there's been something that's come upon them unbidden. And it's really something that they have, a clinical syndrome, a set of signs and symptoms that run a course together that looks the same for people all around the world, um, you know, across centuries or millennia, really. Um, And so those kinds of problems seem to be arising from a broken part or broken function in the body or brain. And so there's examples of that. We don't have a lot of direct evidence of what's a psychiatric disease, what's a broken part and what's not, but there's indirect evidence. This might run in families. It might even be hereditary for people who have, um, you know, are twins and are adopted apart. So they're raised in different environments, but they share this genetic material and they both, you know, have an increased likelihood of having this um, 
this problem, the psychiatric problem. So that gives some suggestion that eh, this runs in families. This may be uh, like other diseases um, that are not psychiatric that run in families. Um, you know, these problems might get better with a medication or with some other kind of physical treatment that makes us think, well, this might be a disease um, more like diabetes, something that comes up on somebody or, or high blood pressure rather than something that um, is more of their own making. So this idea of of the kind of this family of problems that looks like it's um, uh, a disease um, makes us think, okay, well, let's think about just for a moment how much of this person's problems may be because of something they have. Um, and so examples of those are like schizophrenia, um, uh, manic depressive illness. These are things that are really extraordinary experiences, um, often associated with uh, very abnormal thinking or um, uh, or beliefs. So that that's that looks distinctively qualitatively different than other problems that people bring uh, to us. Now, problems like depression, you know, that can have lots of different explanations. And sometimes the explanation is it's a disease. Um, it's from a broken part or a function in the body, but other times we um, might not be so sure. So the depression's a little bit of a, of a, uh, of, of a problem that can be explained through a lot of different lenses and really have to be able to recognize this pattern of signs and symptoms and course to, to say that it's a disease. So the disease perspective, that's what it's asking, how much of these problems are, are most likely due or in some part due to a broken part or function in the brain. And, and some that, are more easy to understand than others. Hmm. And then the next, the next level would be dimensional. And that's the second, the second step in the four stages yeah, so that's another kind of way to think about patients' problems. And so looking at the problems that somebody brings us and thinking how much of this, uh, these problems, how much of this is due to who the person is, either their innate uh, intellectual or cognitive ability or because of their temperament, their um, affective temperament. So, you know, an example of this might be somebody that is... Um, has an IQ that's lower than normal um, or lower than the average, and they might <clears throat> have the potential to uh, react to certain of life's provocations in a way that's maladaptive. They might, you know, say, be put in a classroom where they're being asked to read that might be above their uh, intellectual ability, and so they might respond by, you know, throwing something or getting angry. Um, Likewise, people have different personality temperaments, right? And some people feel things more strongly than others. Some people think about the past or the future more than others. Some people are more open to new experiences or more disagreeable or more conscientious than other people. And so thinking about how much of who someone is, is uh explaining or can explain some of their problems that they're bringing is also an important aspect. Everybody has a personality. Everybody has intellectual abilities and uh, affective temperament or personality uh, traits. And so 
understanding who a person is is important, even if they have a disease, because how they deal with that disease will vary based on their temperament. Well, we mentioned several things that then fall under the, the following rubric, which is behavior. And I just want to pause to say in the book that it's very, I mean, just say about the book that it's very effective that I, I'm sure many readers would nod and say, I do that, right? I, that, that's something that I, that I shouldn't be doing. And uh, such as you mentioned, such as not getting enough exercise is, is a behavior that is, is not helpful. Could you discuss, you just did, but could you expand a little bit on behavior? Yeah. So behavior is sort of another perspective that we can take on a person's problems um, and ask how much of this problem or these set of problems that uh, a patient is bringing to us, how much is due to something that the person is doing. And, um, you know, this could be um, a situation where somebody makes a choice to do something once, is rewarded by that, um, uh, condition to keep doing it, um, and they start having a, re- a stronger and stronger drive to do it, which really limits their choice. So examples of this uh, can be things like eating disorders, where somebody, you know, restricts their food intake. Um, they're concerned about uh, being overweight. They restrict their food intake, and they like the way it feels. People say things to them uh, that encourage them initially, and then they uh, continue to restrict their food intake to the point where it's becoming now maladaptive, it's becoming dangerous for their health. But at that point, their drive to reduce their food intake um, really affects their ability to make a a clear decision um, and a choice to start eating again. Similarly, with uh, substance use disorder, mm. somebody may, uh, you know, use alcohol, and uh, for whatever reason, because of their different biology or because of environmental circumstances, they may start using it more and more. They initially might like the euphoric effect. Later, they might use just to avoid going into alcohol withdrawal, and they use and use the drive increases in them, and the ability to choose not to use is decreases. And so there's a cycle that people can get into with these behaviors um, that can be a reason that they come for help. Um, you know, and usually with exercise, that's something positive, right? Yeah. And so we would uh, we would want not always. Uh, if you have an eating disorder, exercise can be problematic. But usually, we would want to think about how to leverage that uh, kind of brain circuitry that underlies these these motivated behaviors, as we say, um, to uh, leverage those to actually help people exercise more, right? If it's you know, if you get that reward from exercising that, you know, brain uh, reward that that comes with feeling uh, better from the exercise, then you might be encouraged to do it more to the point where it's very hard to miss a day of exercise because you just don't feel quite right. Um, So it can be used, these behaviors can be uh, uh, maladaptive or they can be adaptive, but understanding that cycle of what um, supports uh, behaviors is is really important. 
finally, there's the matter of, of life, the life story. And um, I wonder if you, you, you talk in the book about your own and do you find that when you when you were when you went through a period of depression after your child was born that you you looked back and realized was it then did, did you know that your own mother was was somewhat depressed i mean all, all her life or did you did that only occur to you afterwards that when you were experiencing it yourself or how does life story play into people's realization and, and is that depressing do they say oh no i'm going to be just like my father or i'm going to be just like my mother if they, if they were troubled right. or yeah, so that's an interaction really that you're bringing up between this these two perspectives, right? The disease perspective and the life story perspective. So life story, um, the perspective when somebody brings up their problems to us, we might consider how much of what's going on now with this person is due to something they've encountered in their life. And again, these aren't mutually exclusive. They all kind of interact. Everybody has a personality. Everybody has... Um, uh, a life story. Not everybody has a disease. Not everybody has a behavioral disorder, but um, but these perspectives can interact. And so the example you give of um, you know postpartum depression. Well, you know I I, I understand that as a disease, um, a, a broken part or function in the brain mm. uh, that caused this syndrome to occur. Um, but obviously, there's interactions with personality. If somebody is more anxious, like I, I am, um, you know, you're going to be a more anxious mother. There's going to be more stress. Um, and then, yes, if there's somebody who is in your family who's experienced depression, um, you might worry, um, is this going to happen to me? Am I going to turn out as this person did? Um, and, you know, if that's problematic, I didn't really... I don't think until later really understood that my mother was had been depressed, but probably was late in her life when she got treatment for the depression. That well, I, she, she did. That's good. Yeah, and and had, was changed because of that. That I, uh, I I realized clearly that that was the case, but um, but yeah. So all these things interact, and the meaning that I mean, the life story perspective really is about the meaning we give events, how we deal with. Um, things that we encounter in our life. Um, and whether you have um, a purely life story problem, like like the grief that comes after the loss of a loved one, that's a natural human uh, condition. I don't want to label that as pathological, um, but that is that can cause problems for people for which they seek uh, help, professional help in dealing with um with that kind of loss. So, um, you know, that can, uh, uh, you know, that's a relatively pure life story problem, but then you can have these mixes where people come, you know, with this new diagnosis of schizophrenia, for instance, that they're trying to grapple with. What's the meaning? What's this going to mean for me in my life? How, how am I going to deal with this? Um, so these things can all interact. Um, and it's important to be able to again, look at someone from all these four perspectives and understand that the, even if somebody has a disease, that that's a, a disease that a human being is experiencing, a human being that's a meaning-making creature that has their own personalities, their own set of life experiences. Hmm. Well, now that we've discussed what can lead to a crisis or or, or the need to go see a nice person like Dr. Jess, <laughs> but uh, you, you discuss how, how you address 
once once you're dealing with them, you have the have the four pathways associated with well-being: family, work, education, and community. Could you discuss? Let's start with family. Yeah. So the idea here is it's actually in some ways an extension of the life story. The life story is looking yeah. back on things that you've experienced. And I think these flourishing pathways are sort of looking forward mm-hmm. to how you can, um, despite or maybe even because of what you have experienced, how you can move forward in your life. Um, and so this there is the scientific evidence that's based on these um, large epidemiologic data sets where people were studied for 30 or 40 years and uh, flourishing domains, their mental health, their physical health, their happiness and life satisfaction, these things were measured. And then this epidemiologist at Harvard, uh, Tyler Vanderweel, he looked back on those studies and said, well, what was their family life like? What was their work life like? What was their education like? And what kinds of communities were they a part of? And he was able to identify these four pathways to flourishing, as you said, family, work, education, and community. And he specifically identified religious community, because that's what these uh, large epidemiologic data sets mainly asked about. And so thinking about our our own uh, flourishing, our own well-being, what we're seeking, um, it's important to kind of look at those pathways to flourishing and see how strong they are. And so in terms of family, um, thinking about what our connections are to family, who's who's depending on us in our family, um, where do we fit into that, uh, those relationships? And thinking, uh, I'll just, I think it's easier with an example. So I worked for 10 years at the Center for Addiction and Pregnancy, and I was taking care of women who were pregnant and who had addiction, mainly addiction to heroin. It was very easy, relatively speaking, to get them off the heroin during their pregnancy um, because there was lots of intrinsic motivation. They wanted to do right by their baby and also extrinsic motivation. They wanted to retain custody of their baby after the Mm -hmm. baby was born. Um, So it was relatively easy to get them um, uh, to stop using heroin during their pregnancy. But the long-term outcomes for staying off um, heroin after the baby was born, that was those were more challenging to address. And so we would need to think about ways to um, to help them rebuild these flourishing pathways so that they could actually have a reason uh, to stay off the drugs. And so, for instance, um, you know, a lot of patients have burned bridges with their family members uh, mm. during the course of addiction. You know, they mm. um, might have done things that they regretted, like lying or um, sometimes even stealing from family members to support their drug habit. And uh, helping patients rebuild those connections with family really important to sustaining their long-term recovery and helping them lead a flourishing life. Well, and then you talk about the importance, maybe especially for the people that lack a family relationship or or have broken ties. You talk about the importance of work and you make the point that any kind of work will do. I mean, not, I mean, even volunteer, volunteer work is, is you give a very touching one about a woman who found herself in, she worked from a volunteer job. Several of them worked from a volunteer job into paid work. For example, the young woman that took care of animals and to help train them. But do you find that 
are you seeing an in, there's a, a great deal of coverage of the, the lack of work workforce participation that people just dropping out and are you seeing a, a, a concomitant rise in depression because of they're staying at home and they're not or are they staying at home because they find work depressing it's kind of a vicious circle or they, they don't feel too well to respected at work or so forth or or what is what is your take on that that's happening right now in terms of because work is such a key part of your book yeah so I do think work um I mean even uh, with the flourishing uh kind of question aside work we know is preventive um, of depression. Um, we know that obviously work um, can be stressful and could be a precipitant to depression, but generally speaking, most people who are depressed, uh, we encourage them to continue to work um, because uh, work provides a, a distraction. It provides a sense of meaning and purpose, and it can um, kind of help people stay behaviorally active, which we know is important if they're physically active, if they're engaged in uh, daily activities, it's really uh, does help one's well-being. It helps one keep a daytime schedule rather than drifting into a, a skewed sleep schedule. So work is really important to mental health, and it's a, it, it's important even in the face of a, an illness like depression. Um, but we know that um, the pandemic, for instance, has really impacted flourishing. Initially, it impacted uh, younger um, people, young adults, and uh, the older uh, people, that the greatest, but the older people have been able to bounce back. It's the younger adults that really haven't bounced back to the same level of flourishing that they enjoyed before the, the pandemic. And I do think work plays a part in that. Um, I think um, um, there are many other factors for that, but it re- I, I can't emphasize enough how important work is to our sense of meaning and purpose. I mean, work is not just for paycheck, although, of course, that's always um, welcome if it happens. Uh, and that's why volunteer work is, uh, I consider, equally important, because I really do think the main uh, satisfaction that comes from work is uh knowing that you have something to contribute um, and that people are depending on you and uh, that you have uh, something that you are responsible for. And okay, and next up, education. Yeah, and so education also obviously is important, not only um, uh, for work, um, because that can lead to various work opportunities, but it's a way of remaining engaged with the world. If you have just the basic, uh, you know, high school education, it's really important and has been associated with these flourishing outcomes. Um, Again, not because of confounding factors like, um, you know, that you'll get a better job um, that can help, but also just because in itself, being able to, um, to read, to uh, stay connected with the world, to learn is really important to flourishing. So, you know, when I say education, I don't mean that you have to have, you know, an advanced degree or anything like that to flourish, but having the basic level of education that will allow you to engage with the world and to um, uh, derive pleasure uh, from activities like you know, reading or, um, you know, uh, staying up to date with current events and engaging in discussions is really um, essential to flourishing. It helps us um, have a sense of 
happiness and life satisfaction, but also a sense of meaning and purpose. It helps build our character and virtue by reading the examples of others. Uh, We can have relationships that form through various education activities, whether they're formal or informal. And, um, and it can obviously help our mental health um, by staying cognitively active. Well, I was going to say, and the final one is is community. And I know in the book that you stress, you give an interesting personal discussion of your, your own conversion to Catholicism. And I was just relate as I read that in the book, I was relating it to your emphasis on education because you you talk about exploring various religions, and certainly a conversion to Catholicism is intellectually fairly demanding. Right, you have to it's you have to master a, a certain a, a rather large <laughs> understanding of it, unless, unless that's just my stereotype of it. But I wonder if you could talk about the relationship of education to community and how how joining a community of an intellectual community and a faith community are also related to education. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting um, relationship that you bring up. So, um, so there, these obviously do overlap. Um, So you can uh, gain a community through your work through your um, educational endeavors um, and the idea of a religious community specifically um, is not only uh, can provide intellectual um, kind of stimulation um, uh, for people who uh, love to learn like myself, but it can also provide um, a sense of um, being part of something uh, greater than yourself, um, which can bring a sense of uh, meaning and purpose. Uh, So in addition to the relationships um, that form and um, from those kinds of connections, I think there are these um, other aspects of flourishing that are supported by engagement in community, uh, specifically religious community, um, that we know the um, importance of these kinds of faith traditions in supporting uh, character education, virtue development, a sense of meaning and purpose. Um, And, you know, surprisingly, in some ways, uh, the link between uh, regular religious service attendance and uh, mental health is really strong. It's one of the most strong in the scientific literature mm-hmm. um, with reductions in suicide among regular weekly um, service attendants. I've noticed several times in the interview so far, you've used the word virtue. And I wonder, could you expand on that a little bit? And and do you, do you use that term in, in your clinical interactions or is it just something that's in the ether that you will feel feel better you'll be happier you'll be a more generous person as you as you get less focused on on yourself and and yeah I mean I think virtue has a little bit of a moral valence that um some people may not um it may not be helpful in persuading people uh to consider this uh, uh, you know a word that's often used interchangeably is values you know what are um you know what kind of person do you want to be um do you want to be a courageous person a compassionate person um i think these are generally uh, agreed upon virtues that you know most people aspire um to so um the word virtue though can um, be off-putting to some people. So I would pr- 
probably typically talk about this as as values in my work with patients as well as with um, medical students and other uh, physician learners. Um, it's usually uh, more palatable uh, than virtues for for uh, most people these days. But yeah, I think these are generally agreed upon, uh, you know, goods things that people admire um, in others and would um, aspire to themselves. At this point, I just want to remind listeners that we were talking today with the author of the book, From Survive to Thrive, Living Your Best Life with Mental Illness, Dr. Margaret S. Chisholm. Um, One thing, we've been talking a little bit about education. That brings up the question of young young people. And and we talked about workforce dropoutism, but I guess that affects all cohorts. But over the past decade and long before even COVID, there colleges and universities were reporting large numbers and the percentages and numbers, total numbers of students assessing, accessing campus mental health resources. And do you think that this is because there actually is a mental health crisis in higher education or, or young people in general, or, or is it just that there's more awareness of it so that they seek out help or is there, which, which is it? Is this a, is this a crisis or is it a good thing that there's more recorded, <laughs> recorded cases of, of interactions with clinicians? Well, I I think it's a combination of those two. I mean, um, certainly there has been a rise in serious mental illness among children and adolescents, rising suicide rates, Hmm. um, rising emergency room visits, especially among some uh, populations um, within that uh, age group. So um, there's no doubt that there's an increase in... um, in psychiatric illness. Um, There's a, no doubt there's a decrease in flourishing among these, uh, these age groups. Um, But also um, there is less stigma associated with seeking care. Um, And uh, so people uh, in certain uh, subcultures of, uh, of course, there's still some stigma uh, that's significant that might be a barrier to Uh, accessing care. But I think um, in general, there's less stigma. So people are uh, reaching out for help um, more than they used to. I I worked in at Hopkins in their student mental health center, um, you know, three decades ago. Um, And even uh, during uh, a three-year period that I worked there, I could see an, uh, an increase in the numbers of people accessing care and the decrease in the stigmatization. You know, and the, uh, people are often accessing care at younger ages. And so they've just always, um, you know, taken a psychiatric medication. So it's really kind of part of their identity in some ways. And again, that can cut both ways. That can be a good thing or a bad thing. But um, but in general, I think that there are still, there are rising rates uh, uh, for various reasons uh, that we could hypothesize among young people. And then there's also um, less uh, stigmatization. So more people are accessing care, but there's still many people that aren't accessing care that need to. And there are probably some people that are accessing more care than they need to, but I, hmm. but um, I, that's less of a concern to me than people who really need care, not accessing it. Could you discuss the idea of, of re-scripting 
Yeah. So, you know, so each of these perspectives that I was talking about, the disease, dimensional uh, behavior and life story, each of them have a treatment goal associated with them. So if somebody has a disease, the treatment goal might be to cure that or to remedy that. If somebody's coming to us with a dimensional problem, a uh, problem that's related to their personality, um, we might, uh, you know, the goal is to help guide them through life's provocations and their responses to these uh, provocations. If somebody's coming to us with a behavior um, that's problematic, we want to first interrupt the behavior um, uh, so that we can then engage in more um, uh treatment. And then if somebody's coming to us primarily with a life story um, problem or a problem that's best understood from the life story perspective, uh, one of the goals of treatment is to re-script. So people come when they have had an event, something they've encountered with their life, they've given meaning to that event. Uh, and sometimes the meaning that they've given might not be um, the most adaptive a story that they could be telling themselves. Um, uh, examples of that might be after the loss of a loved one, somebody might feel that they were responsible for that in some way, that they should have done more, could have done more, that they had maybe, um, ha uh, that it was karma, quote unquote, that because of something they had done unrelated, that they were being... Uh, uh, punished for this. Uh, so all kinds of ideas that people can have uh, to explain uh, something that they've encountered. And so one of the goals of therapy really is to work with the person to collaboratively uh, build a, a, a more adaptive story that's going to help them move forward. Um, and again, that's a collaborative and tentative process uh, where we, you know, I, I might suggest that somebody, um, Kind of view this loss as um, a random act of tragedy if it was a uh, you know some unexpected loss or might help them make meaning of the person's life through some a memorial action um, those are the kinds of uh, ways that people can deal with um, events that they've encountered that have been distressing uh, that might be more adaptive than telling themselves um, a story of, of blame or, or um, retribution. Hmm. Well, you just, could you discuss the acronym HIDE, H-I-D-E as in hide and seek? And you make the point that mental, mental disorders are often hidden by the person or, the, or deliberately, or they don't perhaps, or maybe hidden from them. Could you discuss, is it hidden from them or hidden by them or both? Yeah, so the, the acronym HIDE actually is a kind of mnemonic to, to think about these four perspectives. Is this something the person has, a disease? Is this coming from who the person is, dimensional? Um, is this uh, something that the person is doing, behavior? Or is this something that's arising from something the person has encountered? So H-I-D-E has, is, doing, encountered, Um and so, so that's uh, sort of the reason for that acronym, HIDE. Um, but in terms of how people are understanding themselves, uh, sometimes the explanations people give themselves for what they're experiencing may be um, inaccurate. Um, uh, so again, we're all meaning-making creatures. And so when we have a disease, say like... Um, 
a manic episode where we, you know, believe that we're, um, we have superhuman powers or something. Um, the meaning that we give that to, uh, as to why we feel that way may be, uh, totally irrational. Um, or, you know, we can be simply depressed and come um, seeking help. And we may give an explanation for our depression. Well, I'm depressed because, you know, my wife left me. Um, and that may, uh, that event may have happened, but it may have the causal direction may be uh, different. Maybe this person's wife left them because they were depressed and were more irritable or uh, whatever. So um, so a lot of times people will make, they're trying to make meaning out of what they've uh, experienced, but that meaning, even though it might be um, plausible, might not be causal. It might really not be the reason that they're um, e experiencing what they're experiencing. Mm -hmm. One thing that struck me in the book was how resilient a person you are, because things that that I thought would have troubled me a lot, you 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 tend to maybe to me uh, maybe underplay, but I shouldn't say that because that's how you dealt with them. But you, at one point you say, my home life as a child was relatively unremarkable, except for the frequent relocations and the disruptive disruptions caused by my brother's mental illness. I thought, wow, I I, I would, that must have been very difficult to be a young girl with a, a mentally ill brother. And, and, but, but you, but you make the point that you, you just, you deal with it. Except in your case, except except the fact that your brother later did kill himself, and and I wonder you talk about grief and and what I could have done, and and could you talk? I mean, it's it's a it's a touchy touchy subject, but could you discuss about what it's like for the survivors of a suicide of a sibling? Well, um, yeah. So I mean, just first to address this idea about uh, unremarkable. I mean, when this is all you've known, this just seems normal. So. Mm -hmm. um, um, and, uh, so having lots of practice, having moved a lot, um, I just tended to kind of view that the positives of that. Um, and then, you know, if, if you're a kid and there's these troubles in your family life, that's just, you don't know that that isn't happening to everybody or that this is a, you know, exceptional kind of experience and you just mm. adapt. So, um, um, and there's certainly compared to many uh, people's experiences, I feel like I've been, you know, incredibly privileged and 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 blessed to to not have more tragedies happen in my life. But um, you know, obviously the loss of this, this was my brother, who was closest to my age, he's, uh, three years younger, was three years younger. Um, you know, that's a huge loss. Um, and you know, how one processes suicide is very individual. Um, you know, it, it really depends not only on one's personality and, um, but also on, you know, the kind of life story that you've shared with, uh, the person that you've lost. So, um, you know, that this is obviously any loss uh, will cause uh, grief uh, and sadness, but suicides in particular, I think, can cause a lot of um, distress on the people left behind. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, when I see my patients on the, especially the ones I've been seeing in the hospital who are acutely suicidal, you know, I very often say, look, 
you know, if you kill yourself, your family will never get over this. Mm. Um, and because people who are suicidal are often rationalizing, my family will be better off. They'll, they'll be able to move on, but you know, people don't get over it. It's a, it's something that, that weighs on uh, the survivors, you know, is there more that, um, we could have done? Is there, you know, how did this happen? What was my role in, um, bringing, uh, you know, this about, I mean, there's all kinds of guilt and, um, and self-scrutiny and, um, blame and responsibility that's shared by the people who are left behind. It's a very painful experience. And, um, you know, I, I don't think we should, you know, whitewash it for our patients who are thinking about suicide. This is a devastating event and the people left behind will never fully uh, recover. Well, in the book too, you you're very frank, and I, I admired that because it, it 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 helps people understand that even highly successful professors of psychiatry can have troubles that need addressing. And and you talk about as a young woman that you yourself uh, tempted to kill yourself. And I one thing that was shocking to me, and I think that things are better now. I hope they are that you you were just treated for the the um, drug the drug use, and then you. Were, there was no follow-up. They didn't do any any psychiat psychiatric referral or anything. Was that were you looking back on that? Do you think that was healthy for you or bad for you? It, oh was, no, that's shocking. Yeah. I, mean, it, I mean, I feel like I was lucky to have recovered uh, from this depressive episode that precipitated the suicide attempt by an overdose. But after the um, you know overdose, there were physical uh, problems that ensued. I went to the emergency room and. You know, basically saw no mental health professional, um, was given no follow-up. Um, you know, that's unacceptable. Um, certainly uh, hope that that doesn't happen, but I'm sure it does happen every day in emergency rooms or around the country, especially if you're somebody who's articulate and able to talk your way out of situations. It's mm. very easy to to minimize that and to convince other people, um, you know, that this was, was not, you know, there's no danger associated with this. So it's a very, um, you know, concerning. Um, and I uh, am lucky that uh, I was able to recover without um, any professional help. Do you think there's any gender related aspect to that, that, oh, well, young girls are not serious, whereas a young man, of course, a young man might have used a gun and there would have been, he wouldn't have appeared in necessarily the emergency room, he appeared in the morgue, but, but, or is it just that at that time, no matter what the gender was, there was, that well, was just... I, I mean, there are gender differences in suicide attempts. So women will attempt suicide many more times than men and, and not complete the suicide um, in general because of, um, not completing the suicide because the methods used are less lethal. Um, but I do think, I think it was more class actually. I think it was mm -hmm. a bias. Um, you know, if I had, you know, had been homeless for instance, or had looked differently from the people that were taking care of me, they, I, I think might have um, been more likely in some ways to, uh, recommend a psychiatric hospitalization, but, you know, it's uncomfortable to see people that look like you, um, that could be you, um, who try to kill themselves. So we kind of don't want that to happen. We can't imagine that happening to us. So we don't really 
um, maybe acknowledge it happening to other people that look like us. I was going to say after you also say, interestingly, in that instance that three weeks later, you say I used LSD for the third and final time. And surprisingly, within 24 hours, my depression began to lift. And I just thought of that in terms of the supposed promise of psychedelics as much in the news. And I just wondered, do you did you do you think there's any sort of lift scientific validity to those claims or was that just coincidence? Well, yeah, so I, I you know, um, hesitated as to whether to include that um, because there is a lot of hype about psychedelics, you know, curing everything. Um, I do think there's evidence uh, that is emerging from mouse models of depression um, and psilocybin or other psychedelics that things are happening in the brain um, that are we, we don't know exactly what, but something is happening in the brain that is helping um, the condition of depression as well as other conditions. Now, is this re ready for prime time? No, this is highly experimental therapy. I was fortunate that I didn't have uh, an adverse consequence from that. I'm not recommending that to other people, but it mm. was part of my story. And it, I think it was more than coincidence. Um, and, and speaking of, of suicide, and that leads to bereavement, you make the point in the book that, as I, what I liked, and you said that grief shouldn't necessarily be treated as a, as a, as a disease. What do you think of the fact, and it was after much discussion for, for a decade, or, or, or at least, or several years anyway, that the prolonged grief disorder was added to the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM, the famous DSM, in March 2022. Did you did you feel that that was this pathologizing of normal human real emotions, or do you think that that did bring people into the examining room that maybe are depressed and do need some help? Or what, what was your reaction to that? Did you take a position on it prior to this inclusion? Well, I mean, uh, I've always taken a position on it, but it's not been a public necessarily position <laughs> or a position with the organization. So, you know, I have strong feelings about the American Psychiatric Association and the DSM. Mm. Um, and so this diagnostic and statistical manual is, um, you know, it's constructed by a political process. It's not always based in scientific evidence. Mm. It's uh, mainly used as uh, a billing tool. Um, I think mm -hmm. it's reduced uh, psychiatric diagnosis to categorical thinking and thinking of, even though it doesn't say this is a disease, the way diseases are thought about are in categories. Uh, and so it implies um, uh, a disease explanation for these conditions. Um, so there's many concerns I have about the DSM. Um, I am concerned about putting something like prolonged grief disorder in uh, the DSM because it is another uh, normal human uh, experience that can sometimes be uh, prolonged um, depending on the person, depending on the circumstances, uh, you know, depending on your personality, uh, your response to a loss is going to be different. Um, and depending on your other things you've encountered in your life, uh, the meaning you give it, your uh, response is going to be different. So I don't see how you can say one is 
you know, pathological and one is not um, as a blanket statement. I think it's just really individualized. Um, you know, the plus side is that it's now in the DSM and so people can get treatment for it and get, you know, insurance can cover it. And so that's good. I, I, I think that that's, you know, <laughs> um, uh, I, I think that um, whether that good outweighs uh, the addition of that and the pathologizing of a normal experience is um, is is question is a question. So um, I, I think that again, this is uh, this is a billing tool. Uh, that's how I view it. Uh, that's how it's used. I think by most people, uh, um, at least at Johns Hopkins, who are thinking about patients from these perspectives and not um, just thinking about these categories that have a lot of nonspecific symptoms that overlap. You know, we've all seen, uh, all uh, every health mental health professional has seen patients who've come with, you know, five diagnoses, schizophrenia, obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, manic depressive illness, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder in the same person. Um, and that's a product of uh, the DSM and the nonspecific uh, uh, symptoms and a lack of uh, clarity in thought um, and uh, probably relatively brief uh, examinations by the, the mental health professionals. Well, sticking with the process of grieving, could you tell us what the term welling means and how is it manifested? Yeah, so welling is a phenomena where um, uh, people become tearful um, uh, after um the loss uh, after a loss. So welling um, is when one's eyes well up with tears, there might be a flood of sadness. Um, that's really different from somebody who um, may have a brain disease that's causing them to be, um, you know, having a lot of kind of changing emotions and, you know, crying uh, intermittently or different from depression where uh, there's a pervasive and sustained uh, lowered mood uh, and a pervasive and sustained uh, feeling like one is on the verge of tears. Um, so welling is, is a normal um, grief reaction um, in which somebody has um, maybe out of the blue, maybe triggered by uh, a remembrance of their loved one um, where they're they just well up with tears and feel sad, and that's normal. It's not pathological. And a, a cursory uh, evaluation, if somebody asks you, you know, are you feeling tearful? Or if, they, if a professional is seeing you cross-sectionally and see you uh, tearing up, they could potentially say, oh, you know, you're um, depressed. You have a, you know, a, a change in your mood. But the question is, is it is it a change in mood that's fleeting um, or is it a change in mood, mood that's sustained and pervasive? One aspect of your book that I liked was that you make the point that healthy activity, like going for walks and, and engagement in the arts is very important. And, and you make the point, I, again, readers can recognize themselves about sitting down with a smartphone and scrolling through social media when you say you could be interacting with your family or, or again, walking. But 
uh, your Twitter, your own Twitter account is a very effective, I, I think, in terms of it's 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 in, it's interesting from a medical aspect, and also you you often quote poetry and 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 talk about art art exhibitions, and you've taken a rather interesting career turn. Not some not I mean, you've always been interested in the arts, but this is a fairly recent development of new program that you have or. Yeah, so so the Paul McHugh Program for Human Flourishing is focused on uh, helping uh, doctors uh, provide more humanized care of their patients. Um, so medical education is really skewed towards uh, the STEM kind of fields. Most people that enter uh, medical school have, um, you know, a science or uh, engineering or um, math uh, background. Uh, they don't have as much um, knowledge or education in the uh, arts and humanities. And as I, I said earlier, the uh, you know science is only one source of wisdom or one source of authority. Um, other sources of authority are from uh, traditions, from experts, and from witness. And I think the thing about the arts and humanities is that we can really learn a lot from the arts and humanities about uh, what it means to be human, what it means to be a physician, and what it means to lead a good life. So I, um, you know, with the goal of helping uh, medical learners and physicians uh, take more um, humanized care, humanistic care of their patients, um, you know, uh, we're using an arts and humanities based approach to um, to affecting that kind of change. Um, so we're hoping to expose uh, students, specifically medical students, although I've done programs, led programs with uh, pre-meds and through practicing physicians, um, but most of our work is focused on helping medical students uh, learn truths from the arts and humanities. Um, they often come to us thinking that all truths or truths can only come from the sciences. Um, and so through a process of, uh, uh, you know, guided readings, reading seminars, or um, art museum-based uh, learning activities, we help them explore these big philosophical questions and learn these truths uh, from the arts and humanities. Yeah, there's a very touching scene in your in your book when you relate, you were getting over your own depression, your little boy, and you, that he was therapeutic and that he you, you would go with him to museums and you'd go with him to parks and you would walk and you would look at steam engines and that kind of thing. And I guess Baltimore is a very museum rich community. So, But uh, I'm, I'm get, I promised I wouldn't take up all of your morning. So I wanted to ask you the traditional final question on the New Books Network. And that is, what are you working on now? Of course, you just told us a great deal, but what else are you working on as well in your busy, busy life with your many patients and outside of them? And I know that you're busy. Also, you talked about your own volunteer activities, which were rather sweet about food banks and, and other, other ways of helping others. Yeah. So my big focus right now really is on uh, helping uh, medical students or physicians uh, be more human, basically. Um, so that's my whole aim in, in life is to help uh, physicians be more human, uh, because I think that if you're more human, um, you're able, going to be better able to take uh, 
uh, more humanized care of your patients. You're going to be able to provide uh, your patients uh, with the kind of care that recognizes them as human beings. I once had a medical student recently. We had uh, a written reflection prompt. I asked the students to write about, just to this prompt of write about the world within. And this is a fourth year medical student who came up to me afterwards and said, I didn't know what you were talking about. Hmm. What, what world within? That's really sad hmm. uh, to me. If, if they aren't curious or wondering about their own flourishing, their own world within, their own sense of meaning and purpose, character, virtue, their own mental health, their own uh, well-being, how can they possibly be interested in that in their patients. So I believe that by um, helping our medical learners uh, be more human themselves, they're going to be able to take more human care of patients. And I think uh, that the key to learning about uh, what it means to be human, what it means to be a physician, or what it means to lead a good life um, comes from uh, exploring the arts and humanities. Well, good for you for teaching them that reading books is not frivolous or self-indulgent. I mean, reading books outside their field, that, that, that's important and, and, and makes them a better, better, more caring clinician, too. So, well, with that, I will just thank the author we've been talking to today, Dr. Margaret S. Chisholm, author of From Survive to Thrive, Living Your Best Life with Mental Illness. And thank you, listeners. And thanks, everyone. Thank you, Dr. Chisholm. Bye-bye.